I've been listening a lot to the way Republican presidential candidates talk about abortion these days, trying to figure out how they're going to walk a political tightrope. Their challenge looks like this. Most Americans do not want abortion to be against the law. But many Republican base voters do. It leads to a lot of awkward conversations. Well, I don't want unelected justices to be deciding something this personal. I have long said I am pro-life, not because the Republican Party tells me to be. This is Nikki Haley, one of the first Republicans to announce a presidential bid. In a single conversation on CBS last week, she hopscotched from saying she was pro-life to saying any kind of abortion ban was simply impossible. Standard. I think we have to tell the American people the truth. In order to do a national standard, you'd have to have a majority of the House, 60 Senate votes, and a president. We haven't had 60 pro-life senators in 100 years. So Even Donald Trump is struggling here. But if you are re-elected and you're back in the Oval Office and you get legislation to your desk, would you sign a federal abortion ban into law? Uh, what I'll do is negotiate so that people are happy. But the fact Though his approach mostly seems to involve ignoring any questions about abortion. Just to be clear, Mr. President, you, you would sign a federal abortion ban into law. I said this, I said this, I want to do what's right, and we're looking. I called up Mary Ziegler to ask, how exactly is this going to work out for these candidates? Mary's the author of Roe, The History of a National Obsession. She says at least one thing is clear even now. These mishmash answers are not winning over the anti-choice crowd. I think internally it's very frustrating for the anti-abortion movement, especially when it comes to Trump, because I think the movement feels that without anti-abortion voters, Trump may never have been elected and certainly wouldn't have been competitive in 2020. Like, we got you here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, we got you here and this is what you are doing now. But Mary says, these advocates, they are determined to orchestrate a federal abortion ban, no matter what. The anti-abortion groups are pretty clear about what they want, right? They're talking about a 15-week ban. At a minimum, right? I mean, they don't even want a 15-week ban. I mean, they want, like, at least a six... They want a ban from fertilization. When I think about a federal abortion ban the kind that anti-abortion groups are pushing for? Like, I think about a big bill moving through Congress or maybe an executive order of some kind. Is that the right way to think about it? I mean, that's one way it could happen, but that's not the only way. And I think in part, anti-abortion groups know that that's unlikely and are looking for other ways to get kind of a backdoor federal ban. The way the anti-abortion movement is seeing this now is that if there already is a federal law that could be viewed as an abortion ban, that all you need for that to be realistic would be a conservative enough Supreme Court to interpret the law that way and a conservative enough president willing to use resources to enforce the law. And it turns out this federal law already exists. Today on the show... The backdoor abortion ban you may not have heard of yet. There are signs it may already be on its way to becoming a reality. Presidential candidates and Congress be damned. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The federal law that could result in a backdoor abortion ban is known as the Comstock Act. It's 150 years old and made it illegal to send obscene or lewd publications through the mail. It also made it illegal to ship abortion pills or abortion-related paraphernalia. Originally, this law contained an exception for physicians. But that exception disappeared from the final text. And now some anti-abortion activists are making the most of that omission. In the Texas lawsuit looking to ban the abortion pill Mifepristone, for instance, an initial ruling from Judge Matthew Kaczmarek alleged that an abortion pill ban was supported by the straightforward language of the Comstock Act, which is still on the books more than a century after it was enacted. But Mary Ziegler says that interpretation neatly splices out decades of case law. This is a really broad interpretation of the Comstock Act. But if you adopt that interpretation of the Comstock Act, it it essentially means you can't have any abortion in the United States at all. Because there's all abortions rely on things put in the mail, like you mentioned, like scalpels, surgical gloves, you know, misoprostol, which is another way you could have a medication abortion. And so they're arguing essentially that the Comstock Act amounts to a national ban on all abortions. And it's worth emphasizing that national ban has no exceptions. Yeah. I mean, I've been struck by how bullish anti-abortion advocates have been when they've spoken to the press about this. Like one of them talked to The Washington Post recently and basically said, the way I see it, we already have a de facto federal ban on abortion. We've just got to enforce it. They're asking essentially the federal courts to overturn what the precedent has been on the meaning of the Comstock Act since the 1930s. So it's a two-step process for them. They need a court to say that they're right about what the Comstock Act means and that all the federal courts that have interpreted it in the past, you know, almost 100 years are wrong. And they need a Republican president who's not just willing to enforce it, but who's willing, you know, to send a lot of people potentially to prison for five years in states that have protections for abortion and to use taxpayer dollars to do it. Because that's what the Comstock Act says. Like, if you violate this, you go to prison for five years. Yes. So let's go back in time and and talk about where this law came from. It started with a guy named Anthony Comstock. It's named after him. Who was he and why did he grow so concerned about what Americans were getting in the mail? Yeah, Anthony Comstock had been a shopkeeper. He was a Civil War veteran. During the Civil War, he had become very concerned about the consumption of pornography by his fellow soldiers. And he was worried that the country was sort of awash in material about sex and that this was going to get into the hands of children, especially young ladies. And there were already some rules on the mailing of obscene materials, but Comstock thought they weren't strong enough. He wasn't sure they were going to be retained. And so he traveled to Washington, D.C., to Congress with um, his own collection of what he saw as obscene materials. You know, all kinds of like pornographic stuff and abortion paraphernalia and (laughs) contraceptive advertisements that he would just sort of display for members of Congress to show them how bad things had become and to call on them to pass some kind of federal law. And that's what we got with the Comstock Act. I mean, I think it's important to 
remind people where women were at this point, you know, 1873. This law was passed at just an incredibly different moment in time than we're at right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the early interpretations of the Comstock Act reflect that, right? This was a time when married women couldn't own property or make money or testify in court. That like marital rape was perfectly legal. A great deal of domestic violence was too. Women wouldn't be granted the vote uh, until decades after the Comstock Act. And that was reflected in interpretations of it because there was this real panic about the sexual purity of women um, that led to the banning of materials that were, were kind of surprising. I mean, so for example, uh, one of the anti-vice societies in Chicago actually got in trouble for trying to mail a report about vice, you know, to its donors. <laughs> because the, the the postal service, some of the inspectors said, well, you know, young ladies could get their hands on this material. And even if this is designed to, you know, to get rid of vice or to talk about how we ought to get rid of vice, the very fact that it's about vice could corrupt, you know, innocent young ladies. So who did Anthony Comstock himself become once this law was passed? Anthony Comstock himself was given a kind of special role to enforce the Comstock Act. He was actually given a weapon he could carry to enforce the law. Like a gun? Yeah. He was sort of, you know, enforcer number one of the Comstock Act. But um, there was also, I think, somewhat of a backlash against the Comstock Act at this point, in part because people began to see how it was being enforced in real life, right? They began to see that it was being applied in weird and kind of counterintuitive ways. Some of the people who are being prosecuted under Comstock were, were so clearly not the people even Comstock wanted. And other people that Comstock did want to prosecute, other people began to wonder if that was necessary. So instead of, I think, a repeal campaign, what you saw first was sort of an effort to promote a different interpretation of Comstock, what some people thought was a better interpretation of what the statute was supposed to be in the first place. But all kinds of stuff moves through the mail now. Pornography, sex toys, all that sort of stuff. So does the Comstock law functionally still exist? Well, I mean, I guess it depends, right? I mean, it's still it's still on the books, but it hasn't been enforced for a while in meaningful ways. Obviously, it is against child pornography, for example but against lots of other materials it hasn't been. And there have been changes to the Comstock Act. So for example, like the provisions on contraception were repealed in 1971, but even stuff that's still on the books isn't really enforced. And so one of the interesting questions that the courts have to figure out now and Republican presidential candidates have to figure out now is, you know, does it matter that the law hasn't been enforced in a long time? Yeah, essentially, like, can you keep a law in the kitchen drawer and pull it out (laughs) 100 years later when you'd like to use it again? Yeah, yeah. And also when you're using it it, to put people in prison. If it's a criminal law, that feels like the stakes are different. After the break, the cases designed to get the Comstock Act in front of the Supreme Court and raise it from the dead. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Mary Ziegler says it's still not clear just how the courts might end up reviving the Comstock Act. But the cases are coming. It's just a matter of when. Two advocates in particular are looking to force the courts to go on record about what exactly the Comstock Act requires, a lawyer named Jonathan Mitchell and an advocate named Mark Dixon. Together, they're trying to convince conservative towns in liberal states to enact ordinances that enforce Comstock. So far, at least four cities, two counties, and one town have pledged to become so-called sanctuary cities for the unborn. Mary Ziegler says all these ordinances, they're actually a clever bid to get sued and bring Comstock in front of the Supreme Court. Because if you read the letter of the law, it's clear how it would trigger a national abortion ban. So it says, you know, for example, that every obscene, lewd, lascivious, indecent, filthy, or vile article, matter, thing, device, or substance is unmailable. And that includes every article or thing designed, adapted, or intended for producing abortion as well as any article, instrument, substance, drug, medicine, or thing which is advertised or described in a manner calculated to lead another to use or apply it for producing an abortion. I mean, adapted for abortion, right? That includes things that aren't abortion drugs, right? That includes things like methotrexate, which is a chemo drug, or things like rubber gloves. Like, it doesn't even need to be an abortion drug, just something that could be used in a, for an abortion. So essentially what they've realized here is that you have a lot of conservative judges who say, you know, we're textualists, right? We don't care about history or precedent or anything else. We just care about what the text says. And if, if they're really going to be, you know, self-proclaimed textualists about it, the plain text is really broad, right? So that, that's, I think, this is a clever strategy in that way. Mary says the Supreme Court likely realizes that approving a nationwide abortion ban might look somewhat hypocritical, given that in their Dobbs decision, they said states should be deciding how to regulate abortion. It's just not clear if that would stop them from acting. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so it would look really bad, right? I mean, it would look really hypocritical and it would be really embarrassing. You know, the court could say, well, you know, this, we're just interpreting a statute here. We're just, we said the constitutional question should be left to the states. This isn't the constitutional question. We're just interpreting the Comstock Act. Like, there are ways they can tap dance around it legally that may or may not be persuasive, but at the end of the day, right, the optics would be terrible. On the other hand, is this a Supreme Court that cares about that? Probably not, or maybe not, right? I don't know. The Comstock Act, if the court interprets it this way, would go a lot further than what the court did in Dobbs, because this would not be a situation where you had a kind of safety valve for the the pressure and anger that such a decision would produce. And that safety valve thus far has been people can travel to states where abortion is legal, people can get abortion pills in the mail from states abortion is legal, right? This would mean no abortions in effect anywhere, with no exceptions, It's not clear. I mean, women could theoretically and other pregnant people could be punished under this. This is just a you can't mail it and maybe you can't receive it regardless of who you are. It would potentially, again, sweep in lots of other drugs. Again, you know, I'm sure a Republican president would commit to not enforcing it against certain categories of people if that would be seen as too unpopular. 
But still, if you're someone like Brett Kavanaugh, who sort of fancies yourself a reasonable person on this, like someone who's not at either extreme, this interpretation of Comstock is not that, right? This interpretation of Comstock would lead to an outcome much more extreme than voters would ever embrace, even in many red states. Yeah. And clearly, politicians are taking this seriously. The, ju- the Justice Department issued a legal memo in December asserting that the Comstock Act doesn't prevent the mailing of abortion medication when the sender believes the drug will be used lawfully in states where abortion is permitted. So clearly, politicians see this coming. Is there a movement to finally repeal this thing in Washington, do you think? I do. I mean, I think there's been a kind of interesting back and forth about the the Mifepristone litigation and the repeal of Comstock, right? Because on the one hand, Democrats don't want to have a debate about repeal where they equate the actual statute with Jonathan Mitchell's interpretation of the statute before the Supreme Court has had a chance to weigh in. On the other hand, Democrats know that the Comstock Act is basically lying around like a loaded gun because no matter what it actually says or what the history tells us or what the precedent is, you know, you can try to revive it and make it mean what you want if you're conservative. And so I think there, I, I believe there is going to be a repeal movement. What's interesting is just the timing of it because I think you have different pushes and pulls. Like this would be a great election issue for Democrats. On the other hand, there's all this litigation. The courts could be done at some point, right? The Supreme Court could weigh in and say Comstock either means X or Y, and then maybe we'll see politicians move. But we we don't know when that's going to happen. Do you think Comstock is part of conversations anti-abortion groups are having with politicians at this point? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, we, we see this all the time. We saw a group of conservative AGs essentially threatening... Walgreens and CVS and saying, hey, you know, if you all want to dispense Mifepristone, that's great, but just know the Comstock Act is there. And if a different president is in office, they're going to come after you. We've seen some Republicans in Congress say the Biden administration is wrong and the Comstock Act is a national ban. So there definitely are those conversations happening. Um, I have not been a fly in those rooms. And so the interesting question is how Republican politicians are feeling about that, right? On the one hand, they may be happy about it because there's a national bounds. They can say, hey, we didn't, you know, our hands are tied. This is just already the law. On the other hand, it is going to put them potentially in the position of having to go on record about what they think about it, right? Are you frustrated that Congress hasn't already repealed this thing? It just seems like a failure of imagination <laughs> to leave it on the books. Yeah, hey, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the fact that Congress didn't repeal the Comstock Act years ago um, is kind of amazing. I mean, I'm heartened by the fact that there's some interest in doing it now. But yeah, I mean, I think there there was a lot of moments when you would see members of Congress essentially saying, you know, we're just not that worried about abortion right now. Like, we're going to focus on health care. We're going to focus on all this other stuff because we've got Roe v. Wade in the bag. And it's just sort of unimaginable that people would do fill in the blank, whether fill in the blank is overrule Roe or enforce Comstock or whatever. Like, we basically don't need to worry about that because that's not going to happen. It would seem at a certain point that, you know, so many of these things were happening that people would you know, would essentially say, well, wait, maybe maybe it is possible and maybe we need to do something. Hmm. Mary, I'm super grateful for your time. It's always great to talk to another Mary and especially to you. <laughs> yeah, of course. My pleasure. Mary Ziegler is a law professor at UC Davis. Her latest book is Roe, The History of a National Obsession. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. 
Thanks for tuning in. I'll talk to you tomorrow.